Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Starting with verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This poverty has nothing to do with a person's wealth or lack thereof. No matter what a person's financial situation is in life, without Christ, he or she is poverty-stricken. So why is someone who is called poverty-stricken also described as being blessed? What we are looking at here is someone who, through the power of the Holy Spirit, recognizes his or her spiritual poverty. Without Jesus, the person is doomed and has come to the conclusion that, spiritually speaking, he has absolutely nothing to offer. And that means nothing. But due to the work of God in that person's life, that person is rich. Theirs is the kingdom of God. These blessed people are truly blessed. There's nothing wrong in and of itself in being financially rich, and there's nothing in and of itself good about being financially poor. But unless people come to the place where they recognize their spiritual poverty, these people are truly poor. And not only has the Christian come to the place of recognizing his or her poverty, this recognition must never be forgotten, for it never changes. Without Jesus, all people are spiritually poverty-stricken. Jesus points out time and time again the importance of what is going on in the inner man. This blessedness, this inner objective happiness is always there, no matter what the circumstances of a person's life may be, as opposed to subjective happiness that is so often based on circumstances or how someone is thinking at that particular time. And these truly happy people who have truly recognized their spiritual poverty without Jesus are not only part of the kingdom now, but will be citizens of the kingdom forever. Verse 4, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, mourning in and of itself is not what the verse is talking about, any more than being poor in and of itself is what the preceding verse is describing. Also, this mourning is not a hopeless mourning of a spiritually, spiritually poverty-stricken person like Judas Iscariot, who died without hope. Judas Iscariot was someone who was very sorry for what he did, but he died without hope. He was poverty-stricken. He was sorry, 
but he died without hope. Tears in and of themselves is not what we're looking at here. If a person has come to the recognition of his spiritual poverty, it would only seem logical to me that that person, when recognizing how he has offended a holy God, the holy trinity, would internally and perhaps even externally weep due to what has been done or what has not been done. The recognition of inner poverty on the part of the Christian should lead to mourning, not only at the point of salvation, but throughout a Christian's life as well. This mourning on the part of the Christian is not a hopeless mourning. The truly repentant Christian who is mourning over personal sins shall be comforted. This recognition of spiritual poverty and the resultant mourning over sin will surely be made manifest, be made known in the lives of Christians who take sin and confession of sin very seriously. They will not just be going through the motions, but they will be giving proof of their salvation and their positive response to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. This inward life that we are looking at here does not just stay inward, but results in a godly life outwardly. And that leads to our third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I just mentioned that the inward life of the Christian does not just stay inward, but results in a godly life outwardly. And this outward godly life, however, is not a showy, I'm better than you kind of life. The Christian is meek. The Christian keeps his or her strength under control. I'd ask you to turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 32, where we look at the life of Moses. Starting with verse 1 of Exodus 32. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him? And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, after he had made it a golden after he had made it a golden calf and they said these be thy gods o israel which brought thee up out of the land of egypt and when aaron saw it he built an altar before it and aaron made proclamation and said tomorrow is a feast to the lord 
And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people? which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and said unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Now I'd ask you to turn to the book of Psalms. Psalm 106. Psalm 106, which we'll be singing from, Lord willing, at the end of the service. Psalm 106, looking at verse, starting with verse 12. One hundred six, verse twelve. Then believed they his words; they sang his praise. They soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. They envied Moses also in the camp and Aaron the saint of the Lord. The earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. And a fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf at Horeb and worshipped the golden image. Thus they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass. They forgot God, their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt. Wondrous works in the land of Ham, and terrible things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses his chosen stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. How would you like to come to church one Sabbath? And as you walk into the church... Everyone is complaining about God 
and how God does things. And on top of that, these people are, these fellow members of the church, are insulting you to your face and obviously whispering behind your back as they look at you a little bit like this, and then they start talking, and they look. And nobody will actually speak to you unless they're just plain being mean. Now, on top of that, how would you like that to happen every week that you came to church? Now think about Moses and what he went through up to this point, and what he will go through with his people in the future. Moses was given the opportunity to have these, to put it nicely, not-so-nice people wiped out, and literally he would become the father of a new nation. That is power. That is strength. Despite everything that he's gone through, despite what he will go through, and I figure he has a pretty good idea what he may be going through in the future, despite everything, Moses kept his strength under control and refused God's offer. Moses was a meek man, as we see in Scripture. Does that mean that he was a doormat who allowed people to just walk over him whenever they wanted to? Absolutely not. He was, an obvious, he was obviously a man of strength, but he kept that strength under control. He was a meek man whose life pointed forward to a man who was absolutely perfect, and part of this perfection of Jesus involved Meekness. Now I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 3. Starting with verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Notice that he's going to be bringing forth judgment, and yet we see in verse 2, he shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. But then again mentions judgment. To put it bluntly, Jesus will not look nor will he sound like a typical president of the United States or the typical leader of any other country, for that matter. He will be a true leader and a true judge. Now, does this mean that he will never show anger nor 
ever raise his voice. Absolutely not. But he will not be the typical governmental leader who is more who's often more interested in power than doing what is right for his people. He will not be a hormone-driven loudmouth who devilishly and illegally wields power that is not his to wield. And he will not be a power or money-hungry church leader who is more interested in the honors of men than treating his people with love and compassion. No, Jesus will not be like one of the Caesars. He will not be like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. No, he will be much, much more powerful than any of them, but he will keep all of his strength under control at all times. A few weeks back, we looked at Jesus being confronted with a woman who had been caught in adultery. And we see that he wrote on the ground. Now, when I, and he did that twice. When I preached on this passage, I did not say much of anything or anything concerning what Jesus was writing, and I don't know what Jesus was writing, but I believe that this writing points back to the Old Testament, and I'd ask you to turn to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5. My reading zeroes in with verses 4 and forward, but I'll start at verse 1. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines, might drink therein. Now, if you think that's sounding like bad news, the story gets worse. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank in them. So in verse 2, it looks like there's some potential for something going wrong. Now it's going wrong. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of the brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote against another. He's not a, such a big man anymore, is he? 
the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a gold cha chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar greatly, Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were stonied. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house, and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him, whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king... I say, thy father made master of the, of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar, now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation." Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou that Daniel, which art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jewry? I have heard of thee, and that the spirit of the gods is in thee, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. And now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known unto the make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But they could not show the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of thee, and thou canst that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts. Now if thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet, and have a chain of gold about thy neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. That's potential power. Verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself, and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king, and make known to him the interpretation. O thou king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would, would he slew, and whom he would he kept alive, and whom he would he set up, and whom he would he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen, 
and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men and that he appointed and he appointed over it whomsoever he will. And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knowest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee. And thou and thy lords, thy wives and thy concubines have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. Notice he was asked a question. But he's not exactly answering the question. He's getting his words in, the words of God in. He's putting his life on the line and seemingly doing it with a tremendous amount of confidence. As they say, this, wasn't, this isn't his first rodeo. He's gone through this sort of thing before. Now, he's going, after he's gotten his words in about what a fool the king is, now he's going to answer the question. Verse 24, Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the writing that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, afarsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold around his, about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. This is one of the most worthless awards, potentially, that you're ever going to want to get because when you read in verse 30, in, in that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain, and Darius the Mede took the kingdom kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. Notice that Daniel made it very clear he didn't want anything. And what he is given, at least part of it's not going to be worth a whole lot because there's no more kingdom. But God is in charge. Look who's making all the noise. Belshazzar and these people around him. They're making all the noise and on top of everything. Look at what they're drinking out of. Look at what they're using. From God's holy temple. Who is the person who is finally able to solve the problem concerning what just happened? God's man, Daniel. And what is the final result? Three simple words and judgment. Mene, mene, tekel, afarsin. 
The last word there, Perez, the kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Perez, it is the root word that we get Pharisees from. Tying this in with John 8, we see the finger of God writing on the ground. Quietly, calmly, and meekly. The finger of God. But just like with the Babylonians, judgment is coming to the Jews. The ones who do not repent, judgment is coming. The Pharisees and scribes came in with a devious plan of destruction. They were the noisemakers. They were the powerful ones. They said most of what was said. And the result, the hand of God writing. And, then look, and these people looking like fools. The hand of God writing. Maybe this afternoon you want to read about the Ten Commandments. Who wrote the Ten Commandments? Moses wrote the Ten Commandments? No, it came from the hand of God. Through all of this, Jesus kept his strength under control. The religious leaders would eventually win by putting Jesus on the cross. Better put that in big air quotes. They would eventually win by putting Jesus on the cross. Just because Jesus meekly allowed people to mistreat him, even to the point of death, does not mean that he was weak. Jesus kept his strength under control. A meek person is one who keeps his strength under control, someone who submits himself to God, no matter how much he may happen to be provoked. He would rather, he or she would rather suffer wrong than wrong someone. Repeat that. He or she would rather suffer wrong than wrong someone. Exhibiting true meekness can be difficult for the Christian. True biblical meekness means that no matter what someone does to us, we must never lower ourselves to their level, whether that person claims to be a Christian or not. And you never take credit for meekness because except for the grace of God, who knows what you might be like. Just because God has blessed us with biblical knowledge and mental acuity, we must never use those gifts and abilities to sinfully hurt someone, no matter how much we have been sinned against. Christians recognize their spiritual poverty and mourn over their sins, so isn't it logical that they will not sinfully use what they have been blessed with to sinfully harm others, no matter how others cause them harm. Bit of a long sentence there, I'll repeat it. Christians recognize their spiritual poverty and mourn over their sins. So is, it is only logical that they will not sinfully use what they have been blessed with to sinfully harm others, no matter how others may have caused them harm. We should be sensitive to our own sins much more than the sins of others. And we see that this blessed person, 
this blessed person who is willing to suffer wrongs in a meek manner, what's it say about the meek? Will inherit the earth. When a Christian who has recognized his spiritual poverty and has mourned over his sins and continues to mourn over his sins and treats others in a meek, Christ-like manner, no matter how he is treated, that person is able to enjoy the kingdom of God on this earth in a way that no one else can. The meek shall surely inherit the earth, both now and forever. Even the relatively small amount of earthly riches that these meek people own is able to be appreciated by godly meek Christians much more than the world's riches by ungodly people. The question to ask yourself at this point might be, what are some of the ways that will that might help me to be able to objectively look at myself and at the same time help lead me in the direction of true biblical godliness, true biblical meekness that we just see described in verse 5, but also the other Beatitudes that we've looked at as well. And ask yourself the question, do these three Beatitudes describe me? And if not, why not? Do you, one, it's not like I've never mentioned any of these before. Do you read your Bible regularly and in generous portions? Remember, one of the functions of the Ten Commandments is that they serve as a measuring stick so that we can be better able to see how well we are responding to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And Scripture as a whole does a tremendous job of doing this. Secondly, do you pray regularly and not just at bedtime? Pray without ceasing. In other words, prayer is a regular and vital part of your lifestyle. Thirdly, do you strive to deal primarily with the, your, with the sin in your own life? Do you strive to deal primarily with your own sin in your life? One of the major reasons why people lose their temper is that they focus so much on the sins of others and do not focus very much on their own sin. Strive to deal primarily with, your, with the sin in your own life. Get more angry than what you have been at your own sins. It's easy to get angry with other people's sins. Start getting angry with yours and dealing with them in the way that you should. We all need to do that. Number four, do you prosecute yourself? This ties into the third one I mentioned. Do you delve into your actions and the intention behind those actions? Or when you have a disagreement with a loved one, do you, do you just say, well, oh, honey, I didn't mean that. Of course you meant it. That's why you said it. Why did you say that? Why do you catch it? Why is it that you do that on a regular basis? 
what is the reason for this? Delve into your actions and intentions behind your actions. Oh, you'll be one of the things is, oh, we don't want Christians to become too introspective. I'd never met a Christian in my entire life who is too introspective, who delves too much into their own sins and repents too much. I don't know of anybody who repents too much. I know I certainly don't. Do you prosecute yourself? Do you delve into your own actions and the intentions behind those actions? Or do you just, when you get caught doing something wrong, do you just dust yourself off after sinning against someone, go on your merry way, as if nothing has happened and nothing really needs to be dealt with? Maybe you say, I'm sorry. The other person says, I'm sorry. And that's it. Rinse, repeat. Number five, do you catch yourself acting as if your sins are excusable, but the sins of others are inexcusable? See, the reason why I did that is because of this, this, and this. But you obviously have no excuse for what you do. Why? Because I'm me, and you're you, and I'm what? The word's superior. I'm superior to you. I have excuses for why I do things wrong. You obviously don't. I'm superior to you. No. Number six, do you develop friendships with people who will be honest with you about your strengths and shortcomings? Or do you like to have people around you or just tell you about how wonderful you are and how you smell good all the time? Everything about you is just great. No, develop friendships with people who will be honest with you about your strengths and shortcomings. That's going to hurt. Yep, that's going to hurt. But would you rather your friends do that or God do that? Number seven, do you listen or do you major in making sure that others listen to you. Do you listen or do you major in making sure others listen to you? Number eight, when you sin, do you repent and make it right? A lot of us don't have a problem with saying I'm sorry asking for forgiveness, we can maybe do that as long as we don't have to make it right. If we've done damage, we need to make it right. I think we have lost that often in the church. The importance of doing things right. We can even say, well, that sounds kind of Roman Catholic, doesn't it? Sounds like penance. No, there's a difference between penance and being penitent and being sorry and repenting and being sure that you are doing everything you can to undo what you've done, to make it right. Number nine, have a stop mechanism. Do you have a stop mechanism? Do you, do you when you start saying certain things, do you have a way of saying, oh boy, I need to stop. Or do you have someone with you, like when someone's with you? With my wife and I, 
we have a stop mechanism. It's called using the shoe or grabbing the hand, maybe squeezing a bit. Honey, I think you're talking too much. Honey, no, don't be doing that. See, theoretically, nobody sees the, shut up, stop it. You're going too far. Stop it. Do you have a stop mechanism? And 10, do you recognize that you have only one real hope? Remember that if you are a Christian, your salvation is of Jesus and of sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have planned and worked things long before you were born. Meekness is not weakness. It involves keeping your strength under control. If you are a Christian, your main goal should never be to show off how much you know or how wonderful you are. You know you're wonderful, and you want to make that manifest. If you are a Christian, your main goal should be never to show off how much you know or how wonderful you are. Your goal should be to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And most of us understand what the word enjoy means. But what does glorify mean? Glorify, the word glorify involves mirroring, mirroring the attributes of God, such as love, and justice, and holiness. So when faced with difficult situations in life, is your main goal in life to glorify God? When we are faced with situations that we do not like, do we act like a spoiled child? I want an ice cream cone. And what do you mean by I can't have that ice cream cone? I want an ice cream cone. Or how about when we're mistreated by someone? Are we more interested in how we have been hurt than how we need to glorify God? Are we more interested in getting our own way than seeing what Scripture has to say and what we can learn from the situation? <clears throat> Some time back, God brought someone into the lives of the Gordons who was, spiritually speaking, a very hurtful person for us. I spent months fussing and fuming about this person. He drove my wife and myself to such a place that his name is not even to be mentioned in our home. That is how destructive we found him to be. This past week, I came to the conclusion that one, God may have brought this man into our life, into my life, to teach me how not to do things. And secondly, God may have brought this man into my life so that I would look at my life in a more honest and biblical manner and thereby look at sins that I have committed in my life more realistically. We have not 
gotten to the place where we want to be discussing this man very much with each other. But I know that I am more honest about myself since that man came into our lives. In an unusual way, I can finally thank God for bringing that man into our lives. God has used him to teach me things that I have not wanted to spend time admitting to myself. Self-righteousness is a sneaky thing. When we get to the place where we are spending more time dwelling on the sins of others than the sins of ourselves, it is impossible to glorify God and enjoy him in the way that Christians are called on to do. When we get to the place where we are forgetting our spiritual poverty without Jesus and thus not mourning appropriately over our sins, meekness is often difficult to be found in our daily lives. God has called on his people to be meek. We are to keep our strength under control. We are not called on to be controlled by what we think about others. We are called on to mirror the character of Christ and keep our strength under control. And that control involves not just our actions, but our thoughts and feelings as well. Then and only then will we truly glorify God and enjoy him. If we want people to take us seriously when we present the good news of the gospel, reflecting Jesus in our thoughts, words, and actions is so vitally important. Blessed are the meek. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus. We thank you for the times in which we sorrow for the sins that we have committed we thank you for those times that we recognize our spiritual poverty without your Son. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we will look at ourselves in the way that you do, that we would be truly humble, that we would reflect your Son, Jesus, more and more in the things that we do, and also the things that we don't do. We pray, Heavenly Father, that through the work of your Holy Spirit, we will keep our strength under control. In the name of your Son, Jesus, amen.